This is Civil Wrongs, a podcast from the Institute for Public Service Reporting at the University of Memphis, in collaboration with WKNO-FM. Here, we examine historical cases of racial terror and analyze their effect on present-day injustices. I'm your host, Laura Faith Cabetta. This season, we are exploring the lynching of a black man named L. Persons in 1917. Last episode, we told you about what was happening in Memphis that set the stage for his burning, the trail of inconclusive evidence, the torture that led to his confession, and the thousands who gathered with children and snacks to watch him burn. But we also discussed the resistance that followed from the black community that led to the creation of the city's influential NAACP chapter. Please be aware that we discuss extreme violence and that you'll hear racial slurs that were common to the time. In this second episode, we talk to the people alive today who have deep connections to this century-old story. There's Michelle Whitney, L. Person's great-grandniece, who never knew about this piece of family history until a Memphis organization reached out to her in 2017. There's Laura Wilfong Miller, Her great-grandparents were the aunt and uncle of the white teenage girl whose murder set off the investigation that led to L. Person's lynching. And there's Steve Haley, who discovered his grandfather was one of the thousands in the crowd that witnessed the lynching. Learning more about this history has hit them all differently, but for each of them, sharing their family's piece of the story has left an undeniable mark on their lives. My name is Michelle Whitney, and uh, L. Person's was my great-uncle. I uh, was born and raised on the south side of Chicago. Right now I'm in the, in the suburbs. I got a couple of degrees and right now um, I'm working as a director of operations for a local hospital uh, research institute for kids. That's pretty much my story. I have a couple of cats and <laughs> that's pretty much it. <laughs> Michelle's dad was the grandson of Luther Person, who was one of L. Person's brothers. He and his mother left Memphis for Chicago in the 1940s at the height of the Great Migration. The Great Migration refers to the mass movement of Black people fleeing the Jim Crow South to the North, Midwest, and West. It's estimated that 6 million made the trek from the 1910s to the 1970s. It's even why one of Chicago's nicknames is North Mississippi. Fast forward to about 1974, my my mom and dad were at a club on... uh, somewhere. I don't know where it was. And they they met and my dad told her that night that he was going to marry her. She thought he was crazy. So, but but they got together and uh, a couple of years later, they got married. They got married and, 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 or it might've been before that. And then, and then they got married and then they had me. She talks fondly of her parents as anchors in her life who taught her that faith and hard work were necessary to make it as a black person in America. Her grandma was a maid for a prominent white family, her mother worked in a clothes factory, and her father was a mail carrier. They instilled in her a sense of confidence that carried her through being the first person in her family to graduate from college. So, when her parents died, she said it sparked a desire to know more about the ancestors who had paved the way for her. So my my father passed away in 2003, I think, and then my mom passed away in 2016. And if you're an adult and you've experienced, you know, again, we all have issues with our parents, but, 
<laughs> but my parents were, you know, they were imperfectly perfect. You know, they were present. They did the best that they could. I had, you know, okay relationship with one, a really strong relationship with, with the other. Regardless, I'm out here by myself alone. I'm an adult orphan. What do I do now? <laughs> I'm just like, I'm so confused. That's how it started. And so um, I just wanted to find some way to connect with my history. And as any good nerd does, I, start, I started with research. So, <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, I had dabbled a little bit in it, you know, over the years because it was interesting. But this was specifically because I wanted to connect with folks that were no longer present and to kind of build a story and to kind of understand. A few months into her research, Michelle got a message on Ancestry.com from Tom Carlson, then a University of Memphis professor and a volunteer researcher with the Lynching Sites Project of Memphis. That organization was formed in 2015. They were looking for descendants and relatives of L. Persons and the girl he was accused of killing, Antoinette Rappel, in preparation for the 2017 centennial of the event. You know, it was shocking. I kept saying to myself, we're not that far removed from 100, 100 years. Like there are people that are 100 years old, right? I had to reflect on how did I get here? How did I get here when 100 years ago, someone who is, is a part of me was murdered in such a way. My mom or my dad, or my dad, specifically my mom, would have certain reactions to certain things, you know, as far as race would be concerned. You know, she would have concerns about me, you know, being in certain neighborhoods at night and this, that, and the other. And, and I'm like, what, is, what are you, what's wrong? What are you talking about? You know, that kind of thing. And it occurred to me in that moment that the concerns that my parents may have had when it comes to racial tensions and things like that were not that far removed if someone just a hundred years ago could have been lynched in that way. And so, you know, it was kind of this whole like reconciliation thing. I, I never thought of myself as a person that is any kind of like, I don't know, anything important when it comes to racial reconciliation or anything like that. I, I'm just a person that's just going to work and coming home and taking care of cats. So I'm like, you know, but I really had to kind of do some some soul searching in, you know, what it is that what my role is in that. You know, it, it, it may not be out there picketing or, or anything like that. It could just be the fact that I'm here and I'm surviving and I'm alive and I'm productive and and I'm who I am. That is a testament to those individuals who didn't make it this far. So I just, uh, it was, it was a very reflective time for me because reading and, and understanding and learning more and more about the nature of the situation was very, very traumatic. And thinking in terms of someone being burnt alive, that's, you know, I mean, anybody, that's horrible to think about that occurring. Michelle had never heard about this part of her family history. For many Black families, trauma of this magnitude is left in silence, sometimes because of the misplaced shame and sometimes because it's just too painful to speak aloud. But Michelle said the knowledge was worth the hurt. I hope that people will learn 
that they don't have to be scared of the history, that they can stay connected to the history and still be themselves, whatever that may look like. You don't have to get stuck in, you know, anger or whatever about what may have happened 100 years ago, but it's important to stay connected with it so that you can see things through that lens as you move forward as a person in the future. So I think it's just a matter of connectedness. I mean, I, I don't have to tell everybody I meet that I, you know, had an uncle that was lynched 100 years ago, but I am seeing the world through that lens. How Laura Wilfong Miller came to know about her family's connection to L. Person's lynching was very different from Michelle. Her great-grandfather led the search party that eventually found his niece, Antoinette, raped and beheaded in the woods. When Laura was a teenager, her grandmother told her about Antoinette's murder and even showed her some items of hers the family kept. I remember her telling me things, and it was just very, from what I remember, very factual as far as her memory, and there wasn't a lot of opinion sliced in there. She was very, like, this is, you know, this is what happened. Here's her stuff. And she would show me her books, her bicycle basket, her gloves um, that were with her the day they found her. And, you know, and then some of the the story about what happened with Elle. And so much so that I did my, f- I said my first paper, my only paper. But the first time I started researching, I did a paper in high school for my senior year on this story. And that was back when you had to go to the library and like get microfiche. <laughs> and, you know, none of it was online anywhere. So I went to the main library and went to the Memphis archives room and pulled up um, tons of articles. And that was kind of my first dive into solo research, you know, without family. She was shocked to confirm that thousands had gathered to watch L. Persons burn and that vendors sold snacks like it was a carnival. Still, that was really the only exposure Laura had to lynchings. Lynchings weren't taught at her private Christian school in Memphis. While she was a student there in the late 90s, an interracial couple was banned from walking together after they won homecoming king and queen. It wasn't until 2017 that she started to understand how L. Person's lynching fit within the broader context of American history, rather than just knowing the facts of the case. That was when Tom Carlson, the same man who contacted Michelle, called Laura about participating in the centennial event. Tom passed away the following year. It was just a lot, but also like it was such a turning point for me. I went to Tom's house. He came to my house. I mean, it was just, yeah, I really started putting into context what this meant. And, you know, I really would tell people too, it's just just as simple as I'm not allowed to have an opinion about something else that happened to a whole other population of people. And I cannot minimalize, minimalize their their opinions, their thoughts, their feelings, or the facts, the data, any of the, all the things that are out there. I really had to undo. And I, I was not, I would say undo, but I mean, I had to undo a good amount of some pre-programming, you know, from the way I was raised or things I'd heard or preconceived notions, whatever. I mean, I, I had to really take a, some time and... and just become very different about the way I viewed things and had a lot of conversations with my daughter about that too. It was really important. And then came the 100th anniversary commemoration in Memphis in May 2017. 
Leading up to it, high school students in a group created by education organization Facing History and Ourselves helped draft the text of the historical marker that was unveiled during the ceremony. About 100 people gathered near the lynching site that day. The ceremony included musical performances, prayers, speeches, and a libation ritual to honor L. Persons. And I always appreciated the way Tom, too, you know, and, and everyone, but there was, you know, they made sure not to forget Antoinette in, in this, and that her immediate family may have made thought justice had been had. I mean, her mother, she was, you know, quoted in the paper. I know she was there. But it's clear now, should have been then, but it's clear, you know, that he was not the one at all. And so... Ultimately, there's not was not justice for her death, but you know I remember sitting at dinner that night and having this overwhelming need to apologize, <laughs> and I don't know that I ever did because I felt awkward. But like that's I just kind of that's what I was that was what I was feeling at that time. You know, it was um, a lot of um, just emotions and unsure. For Michelle, the ceremony illuminated a clear connection between America's past and present racism. And that thought has only grown stronger in the five years since the commemoration. Any kind of, of hate that has uncovered itself over the last several years, I think is, is definitely a connection of, of healing or reconciliation that has not occurred on the part of, you know, whites or blacks or, or whoever, because it's just been, let's be in denial about this so that we can just keep on living. And I think that as any wound that is not properly taken care of, it's going to fester. And, and that's what I think is occurring now. There were consequences, long-term consequences that occurred as a result of the treatment of, of Black people in America. And it's just, you, don't, you won't understand it unless you understand the root of it and you deal with it, so. Hey. Hello, how, how are, are you? How are you doing? Good. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too, Laura Cabetta. This is Steve Haley, a retired history professor at Southwest Tennessee Community College. He's also his family's historian. I met him at his house in Memphis, where he has walls of photos, not just of normal family portraits, but the kind of photos you would have thought came out of a magazine. At one point, his mother danced with Shirley Temple. His father was an actor. Steve, like Michelle, started exploring his family history when grief struck back to back. My mother and grandmother had died, and I came back to take care of my grandfather, who was by himself. For some strange reason, he didn't want to move to New Hampshire. Anyway, I decided it would be a good time to uh, do a family history. So I did the oral history, sitting around the kitchen table for several hours, and he told me as much as he could back to the Civil War. And it was fascinating, because I never heard uh, any of the stories, basically. But there was one story in particular he wanted to make sure they talked about. A few years earlier, his grandfather had mentioned in passing that he had witnessed a lynching. It, uh, it obviously affected me a good bit because I was thinking about it constantly and wanting to go back to it and find the details. 
because I knew that he probably, you know, his memory of 70, 60 years. You know. But I was amazed at how accurate he was in certain areas and off on a few others, minor stuff, actually, like what year. But in terms of the lynching itself, he remembered very distinctly. The following clip is from Steve's conversation with his grandfather, Alex Williams, who was 82 at the time of the interview in 1970, and 29 the year L. Persons was lynched. He died a few years after this was recorded. It contains racial slurs, but it's also a powerful eyewitness account, which is why we're including it. Word spread like wildfire. It went all over Memphis in about an hour's time. And first thing I know, they were whispering on every corner. They brought that nigga across the bridge. They're going to burn him at the stake. They're going to, uh, didn't say burn him at the stake. They're going to murder him. They're going to hang him or do something. Going to lynch him. So Jones and I jumped in his old Ford car and went out there. But they brought that nigga across there. And they, that's this uh, girl's mother. How, the, how she wanted him punished. And, and uh, someone said she told him to make him suffer as much as he made her daughter suffer. So they carried him over to that log and tied him to that log and started piling those old wet logs and things on them. They couldn't start a fire and went out up on the highway and carried, got this oil truck and brought it down there and emptied oil all over the wood and set it on fire. And I can smell that nigga's face cooking right now. Sometimes. But... Nobody would, it was quiet, everything was quiet as a mouth. That, that mob was so serious until it was pitiful. They would have killed anybody that would have made an attempt to, to interfere. Though he can't hear it well from the tape, Steve said retelling the story really affected his grandfather. He uh, cried. And uh, I guess it made an impression on me because... I cried. <laughs> Before the interview, Steve had already been exposed to America's racial violence as a doctoral student in history. So the content wasn't necessarily surprising to him. He doesn't think his grandfather was a leader in the mob, but also didn't excuse his participation. I'd say my impression was that 95% of the people out there were cheering it on. You know, even though it may, may, may not be vocally cheering it on, they were all for it. To him, his grandfather's attitude was typical of a white Southern man at the time. He didn't actively oppose civil rights when Steve was growing up, but his grandfather also didn't actively support them. We had a, a fairly lengthy discussion about him being fairly neutral about his feelings, and, I, you know, I, I can't tell whether or not um, that was the truth or not. I mean, I never heard any anything negative. And maybe it had a major impact on him. It did... 60 years later, when he was crying. I don't know. Steve's grandson ended up being one of the high school students that worked on the historical marker. Steve has made sure each of his children and grandchildren listen to the interview tape in its entirety, which includes details about World War I, the Great Depression, and what it was like growing up within the first few decades after the Civil War. It's his way of staying connected to those who came before him and all that they experienced. The good, the bad, and the ugly. In our next and final episode of the season... Then I realized that some of the uh, tales that I had heard about what was happening pertaining to interrogation, 
they were in fact, uh, they were factual. We examined the ties between so-called third-degree police interrogation tactics that were common during L. Person's time and the tactics used today that endanger people of confessing to crimes they did not commit. Civil Wrongs is a project of the University of Memphis's Institute for Public Service Reporting. It's recorded and written by me, Laura Faith Cabetta. Our podcast is produced by Christopher Blank with WKNO-FM. Our original music was composed by Andrew J. Crutcher. This work is made possible by donations to the Institute for Public Service Reporting, WKNO-FM, and Report for America. Music